Today we're going to talk about colors. One of these colors defines you and one does not. One of these colors is to be embraced and enjoyed while that same color is to be feared and avoided. Your job today is to choose your color. You get a choice. You get a choice. Your decisions actually matter. They have eternal consequences. My fear, here's my fear, is that you think you have plenty of time to decide on your color. You keep your options open. You believe now is the time to sow your wild oats while you're young. But that's not true. So here's my goal. My goal is to make this decision very easy for you. I present to you three colors, blue, black, and yellow. You have to choose who you are. To do that, I'd like you to open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and please stand. That is our passage for today. And as we read it, see if you can find the colors. Verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And everybody said, amen. You may, you may be seated. The first order business, the first order business is to create what I'm going to call an organizational structure for the mind, a speculative timeline. So this is going to be a speculative timeline. I'm not going to take a lot of time on it, only five minutes. Some people hold, spend their whole life working on timelines that don't come to anything. So we're going to take only five minutes to work you through this timeline of how the end time events may happen. This is how I personally make sense out of the, those things in Scripture that discuss end time. So just remember, before we start this timeline, when it comes to these issues, we all 
we all see through a glass darkly. I want to begin right here, and on your thing it's a C, it stands for the cross. This cross is where a man really came, and he really died. He was real. This isn't a fabrication, it's a man who took the sins of the world on his shoulders. He was pounded with nails in his hands and his feet, spear shot him in the side, because he loved you. This begins the timeline. Goes all the way to the very end, where we have E, and E stands for the eternal state. This is the goal. This is the goal of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. This is why he made you. This is why you breathe. Breathe in. He gives you breath for this. That we might be with him and know him and see him face to face forever. That is the end game. And this is the timeline. Let's talk about the timeline a little bit. First, is the blue period where God is looking for people. I'm going to call these people Team Blue. This blue period represents the season of grace. Grace is God's undeserved love that cleanses us like baptismal water represents the cleansing of our sin. We're pure. When we believe, we're washed through the water of the word. We become his. We join Team Blue. And it's a position you can never lose. Team Black. This black period is tragically and dramatically prepared for Team Black so they will finally get what they deserve. It is here where grace is no longer extended. Grace is meant for here. Grace is a luxury. It's not deserved. This, however, is replaced by law and the cold, code, legal, code, impartial code, and it respects no manner of person. So if you are really demanding and wanting justice because it sounds so right and so fair, it's here where you'll finally get what you deserve. But I must warn you, true justice comes as wrath for the wages of sin is death. Are you sure you really want what you think you deserve. Just to let you know, before we move on to the yellow period, it takes nothing on your part, nothing on your part to join Team Black. Nothing but doing what you've always been doing. We're all born into it. Then you have the yellow period. This is the period that we've been waiting for. This is, this is the end for which God created the world. This is the eternal, unending, perpetual experience of being in the presence of God. This is glory. 
True glory is beyond our comprehension. And when you are prepared for it by being in Christ, when you are covered by Him, you will enjoy glory's pleasures forevermore. You will get to taste the chocolate river of Willy Wonka's factory without getting sucked into the tube. It's going to be amazing. But glory is catastrophic when you're not in Christ. Remember, no one in their present state can see the face of God and live. So if you are not prepared for glory, it will not be glorious. Let's get some explanations of these periods. First of all, the blue period, this is the church age. After Jesus died and rose again, 8030, the church age began when he sends his spirit to find those that he wants to be a part of his body, his bride, Team Blue. God has been looking for both Jew and Gentile to come to him by faith, to actually believe that he did die and rise again for your sins. And when you come to him by faith, you are joined to his church. question is, how long is this period going to last? No one knows. But when it's over, this happens. Some scholars call this the Great Tribulation Period or the Trib. Traditionally, it's said to be a seven-year period. That has two purposes. Purpose number one is to judge the unbelieving Gentile world. As 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, 8 says, those who have not accepted the gospel, in other words, they have, not, they have not accepted the invitation of the cross. They've rejected it. And it's also for the nation Israel to bring them back to God to remove their dross of thousands of years of unbelief. And then yellow is the millennial kingdom. The king, also known as the Messiah, also known as the Christ, will have his day. A thousand years. Where all the Old Testament promises will come true. He's going to show all of us arrogant, what I call political hacks, ideologues, sophisticated intellectual, caustic Facebook debaters, Twitter hacks, how to really run a government finally with all this rotten debate. He's coming to set up rule. So this is the timeline. Some people have asked, when is the king coming specifically? There's debate on this. To me, it seems like there's a hint in Thessalonians of when he's going to come. It's not a definitive, but it's a hint. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. He says, for God has not destined us, brothers and sisters, those on Team Blue, He has not destined us for wrath. In other words, Team Blue will not experience the black period. This is where speculation, what I would say, enters deeper into the fog of unknowing by three degrees. It's hard to fully know what really will happen. We can speculate. I believe, as we discussed last week, that there is an event called the rapture. That God will snatch the church, his bride, up and take his people to be with him. And then this period comes. 
Some people think it's going to happen here. Some people think it's going to happen here. Some people think it's going to be the same event as when he comes down to take over the earth. Nobody really knows. Some people who I respect and love place this at a very different time period. But that's not my objective to figure out foggy speculation. So this is a schematic. The question for today, what is the purpose of our text? What is the purpose of the writings of Paul? And I believe he has two purposes. First is to address Team Blue. For Team Blue, Paul wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to not fear. In verse 1, he calls them brothers. Now concerning the time and seasons, brothers, he calls them brothers in verse 4. But you're not in darkness, brothers. And the word brothers is where we get the term brethren, sons and daughters of God, the family of God. He uses this term as a term of endearment. In other words, we're his. We're his people. Team Blue are his people, his bride. His tone is not one of fear and terror at the thought of the king's coming. Oh, no, but of reassurance. You have no need for anything to be written. Listen how he writes it. Now, concerning the times and seasons, this is verse 1, you have no need to have anything written to you. It's like telling someone, we've discussed this a lot. It's something you should know very well, so don't, don't stress out. Don't stress out about it. Don't worry. Gordon Fee writes, Paul's concern is to reiterate the significance of what they know, which does not have to do with cooling their enthusiasm, meaning he's coming, oh no, no, be excited about it, is what he's saying. And so, by reminding them with how they should live in light of its certainty, Paul is not trying to scare them about the return of Christ, but to reassure them that he is coming. And they have nothing to fear. Jesus is coming for us. For Team Black... I keep messing all these things up. Team Black, where are you? It's not that one either. All right, here it is. Yes, I've got my papers right. Please forgive me, Missy. I know I messed you up. Team Black, Paul wants them to be warned about the events in the end. In verse 3, he calls them as a group, people. Look at verse 3. While people are saying, people, who are they? Who are the people? The people is a general term applied to the average unsaved person who's living in this moment, for the moment, for this world. The idea is their claws are in this to get all they can. Those are the people. And instead of being troubled by the thought of God coming back, they think everything is great. It says in here, peace, security. Everything's great. Everything's fine. No worries. Paul's referencing actually Jeremiah chapter 6. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 6, he talks about the attitude that leads them to say everything's fine. It's kind of scary. Go to Jeremiah chapter 6, and you'll see he's quoting verse 14. 
But you have to see what leads up to verse 14. It's very important. I think it may be the most important thing of this message. So it's Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah is after you have Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, major prophet, Jeremiah, major prophet. Look what he says in verse 14. He's talking to people who have run from God and so judgment's coming. And they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Saying there's a gaping wound. Somebody looks at the gaping wound and says, oh, it's no big deal. Throw a band-aid on it. They'll be fine. That's the point. There's a moral gaping wound and people are saying, how did they get to this point? Well, look at starting in verse 10. Whom uh, shall I speak to and give warning that they may listen to me? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. That means they're not open. They're not pierced. They're closed. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. How do they get to this point? Well, first of all, what God says, they don't care. Okay? You wrote a book? So what? It's kind of boring, this book. It's big. Kind of a big book, you know? Kind of confusing. Has weird names. Ah, I got better things to do. Did you see that last? Uh, did you see that funny cat video on YouTube? It's a lot funny. It's really funny. This? Well, let's keep reading what else they're like. He says in verse 11, because of the way their attitude is, he's full of wrath. He's not holding it in. Their houses shall be turned over to others. Why? Because look at verse 13. For, the, for from the least to the greatest, least could be in economic position. From the least, you're poor and dirt, to you're a rich billionaire. Or this could also be status in society. You are a peasant or a king. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy. I thought just one group of people were greedy. No, no, no. He's saying everyone is greedy. Uh, for unjust gain and from prophet to priest, that means the spiritual men, spiritual women, everyone's lying, deals falsely. So what that leads them to see the world that's falling apart but say everything's great, everything's fine, peace and safety. Then you have 15 is the saddest. This is the where you finally get to the bottom of who you are. Were they ashamed when they committed their abominations? That means horrendous sins against God. No, 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 no. They were not at all ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. Wow. Sounds like it. Sounds a little bit like a period of time that we live in, just a little bit. So his tone for them, the black, is foreboding. He uses words in verse 3 like sudden destruction. Verse 3, no escape. And verse 9, Team Black is destined for wrath. I think he wants every reader to just consider the terrifying reality of the arrival on that day as printed in verse 4. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What day? What day? That day. 
What is that day? Well, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So that day is what's called an eschatological or end times term for the final return of the king. Could encompass all of this. Could encompass the rapture to the tribulation to glory. All of this in the mind of the writers could be that day. One scholar writes, the title Day of the Lord comes from prophetic tradition where it already had a degree of ambiguity. That means confusion. They weren't quite sure. But this was a day of expectation when Yahweh, Jehovah God, the God who said to Moses, I am who I am, would come and restore Israel's fortunes. Listen to Amos 5, 18 20. Listen to what it says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Wow. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. So the time period of the day of the Lord is not a nice picture. It can include a whole lot. From rapture to tribulation to second coming to the end of the world. For Paul and the other New Testament writers, they were not sure exactly. They were not sure what it encompassed. But they did know one thing specifically. And this may be the most important thing. They knew one thing. Come as a thief in the night. Paul is referencing in this phrase, thief in the night, which you can see in verse 2 and 4, like a thief in the night. He's referencing Jesus. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew and Luke. A thief in the night has three practical implications for all of us who are looking for the day of the Lord. I'm looking for the day of the Lord. We're supposed to be excited about his coming. But there's three practical implications for those who are looking. Number one, no one, no one will know the day or the hour. Jesus says this himself twice. It's recorded in the Gospels. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Hmm. I like what one writer said about this phrase. And listen closely, this is pretty important. What you accurately can know is that you cannot know what you seek to know. Here I put it in my own terms. The moment you think you know the day, that day you think you know will no longer be the day you think you know. You want me to say it again? You'll, yeah, write this down. The moment you think you know the day, and I'll say it kind of like this. The moment you think you know the day, that day you think you know, will no longer be the day you know it to be. Make sense? It's causing him to sleep. This is exciting stuff. So here's what I would say. Stop speculating. 
and start living your life because no one really knows. Seriously. Some people spend their whole life speculating. And then they don't love their neighbor because they're too worried about sharks. But they have in some attic where the dust is falling down and they're like, you know, having spectacles to figure out. End time speculation reminds me of playing the lottery. Even though others don't think they can win, I know I can win. Even though God says he has hidden the day, even if Jesus says he himself doesn't know the day, I think I figured it out. But no one will know. I've heard people say, well, pastor, I know you don't know, but do you think he'll come in my lifetime? Because I feel it in my bones. And by the way, I'm going to play the Mega Millions, and I feel the lucky number seven is for me. Because it's God's number. i got to play that. That'll win. Really? Second thing about a, uh, the day of the Lord, coming like a thief means it's going to be sudden. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, everything's great, everything's fine. Then sudden destruction will come. Oh. So, you could say this, it is impossible to prepare for this once he decides to come. And when he comes, he gives, will give no hints, no signs, no harbingers where we can uncode it and say, did you read the headlines today? Oh, he's got to be close. Oh boy, I can tell that day is near. News break, it's always been close. It's always been close. The reason why is because man has always been doing shameful things. Ungodly things. And society's not getting better to usher in his coming. When he comes, he just comes. Based on nothing we've done or nothing we haven't done. He just comes called apocalyptic theory, where he comes when we least expect it. He rescues when we aren't even thinking we need to be rescued. Uh, This one writer, Fleming Rutledge, says, he descends from his sphere of transcendent power to deliver his people from their servitude and restore them to a brand new life. It is the coming triumph of God, independent of anything human beings can do, either good or bad. While people are saying, I'm good, I'm great, everything's fine, he comes. The third thing about a thief, and this is the most terrifying for me, you gotta, it's, this is a strange thought. If you haven't escaped, you won't escape. Look at verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So verse 4 has the idea that those who are on Team Blue, so if you're on Team Blue, you will not be surprised, and you will not be surprised because you will be snatched and taken away, so you won't have any time to be surprised. It just will happen. It won't shock you because you'll already be changed, and the twinkling of an eye will be different. It'll all make sense in a moment. But these guys won't. They will, these guys will be surprised, and they won't escape it. 
Here's what Jesus says. Here's what he says. This is Matthew 24, 6 through 13. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No. They replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for ourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open a door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You know what's strange about that? Jesus wrote that. Gordon Fee says this phrase, no escape, serves as a reassurance that the Thessalonians' enemies, the source of their constant afflictions, will eventually get theirs. That's terrifying. If you are a Christian and you feel you're being mistreated, you're being mocked, you're being wrongly understood, that is nothing. That is nothing. Let me say that again. That is nothing compared to people who think they have nothing to worry about. I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. Because Team Black won't escape. So the question is, how do I know if I'm on Team Blue or Team Black? You could say this, Team Black, generally speaking, are people of the night. Though they are alive, they are asleep. So I'm going to call Team Black sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. Verse 5, we are not of the light or darkness. It's a contrast to people who are in team blue are not like people in team black who are of the night and darkness. Let us not sleep as they do or people do or others do. And verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. So here's what Paul's doing. He's painting a picture of groping their way in the darkness because they're sleeping. Darkness and night is not a reference to the time of day. It's not if you stay out late, you're in this. This has nothing really to do with the time of day, but the condition of your soul. They are blind to what is really going on, and they don't even know it. And the question is, what, okay, what do sleepers do? They dream. Sleepers dream. So you could say, this group right here, lives in a dream world. Believing they are all at peace, everything's great, everything's fine, but suddenly destruction is waiting on the other side of the door. Let me show you what I mean in Psalm 73. Go to Psalm 73. This is a passage that is powerful. Psalm 73. And we're going to look at it a little bit later on too, so just if you have like a marker like that, mark it because it took me in the first service 10 minutes to find it the second time. And it stole the 
thunder from my sermon. Anyhow, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a very interesting psalm. Asaph wrote it, and he's looking at the world, and he's looking at people that are succeeding. He's looking at people that are rich. He's looking at evil people who are doing wonderful, and here he is trying to be godly, and his heart's breaking because he's not as rich, not as healthy. He doesn't have it made like they seem to. Does anybody ever feel like that? That's the question. Starting in verse 2, he says, As for me, my, my feet have almost stumbled, my steps have nearly slipped, meaning I've almost, I almost lost it mentally. I just, I don't want to, I'm kind of tired out. Verse 3, why was he so tired? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Seems like the wicked make tons of money. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That means they're in great shape. They're doing well. They're not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They think they're something. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They have a lot to eat, and they have plenty of recreational time. They scoff, and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. I'm great. I'm fine. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in Mosai? God, who's he? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day... I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I'd speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It doesn't make sense, he's saying. I just don't get it. I don't get it. I tried to live for God, and it just doesn't seem to be paying off. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, meaning they're kind of on this cliff, a cliff that's greased, and they're about ready to step, but they don't know it. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They're really nothing more than a dream. This is a dream world. Riches, popularity. It's a dream Team's black, Team Black's dream world convinces them that they'll escape judgment. But the moment God decides the dream is over, it's over. How many of you who have ever lost somebody you love, and it's shocking how quick death happens? Like it's shocking. That's the point. Jonathan Edwards calls this state of mind self-flattery. Dreamers persuade themselves that they shall escape those judgments and that makes them put far away the day of evil from their mind. Some flatter themselves with the hope that there's no such thing as another world made up by a few religious fanatics. Some tell themselves that the day of death is a long, long, long way off. I've got plenty of time to make things right. Whatever the case, the dream convinces them that God has no real reason to be angry at them 
And all this talk about eternal torment, ah, it's made up. It's made up. The inventions of some angry patriarchal white men, probably. The second descriptive term of sleepwalkers in here is that they're a bunch of drunks. Though this may be meant to be a literal description, meaning the, these are people that are addicted to substances to dull the pain of living, I think it's talking about a general disposition to sleepwalker's heart. Namely, this is what I think drunkenness means in reference here, they've lost all sensitivity to the convictions and the promptings of God when he wants them to take this world seriously. Your decisions matter. They really do. What you do with your life matters. People matter. Sin is killing us. But the drunk doesn't care. He needs another beer. Give me another beer. Proverbs 23, 29 to 35 describes a drunk. It says how they kind of are like on the sea. But the last verse, verse 35 says, and I think it's an accurate description of what a drunk is like. Especially if you've ever been drunk yourself or been around drunk people. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. Sounds like a lot of the rugby friends I had in college. They would drink and drink and drink, and then they'd go out to the bar to start fights. I know of some guys on my rugby team that would fight three or four fights a night. They'd come home thinking it was hilarious. Ha, 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 I had a great night. And then the next morning they'd wake up at noon with a hangover, and they'd have a broken hand, or they'd have a cut eye, or they'd have some chipped teeth, but they'd still think it's funny. You know, a lot of Christians think that stuff's funny. They think some of those shows, like, oh, just those stupid shows, movies, and they laugh. Beating people's senseless, breaking bones, sleeping around, puking your guts out. It's not funny because we're made in Christ's image. We're to glorify him. Nobility. It's one of my favorite words. Honor and nobility. Sleepwalkers not only ignore the warnings, but they laugh at the seriousness of life. Philippians 3.19 says their destiny is destruction their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Give me another drink. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. You know you don't need to drink to be a drunk. You just need to not care about the seriousness of life. And many people act like a drink even though they never once picked up a drink. They just don't care. Team Blue, how do you know you're in Team Blue? Generally speaking, Team blue people are of the day. Sunshine and blue skies are of the day. It means they're fully alive. Paul calls them children, sons, daughters of the Father. You are not in darkness. You are children of light, verse 5. You're children of the day, verse 5. We belong to the day, verse 8. They are called day people which is meant to be a reminder that we need to live as if we're in the day. What does that mean? 
It's to mean means you live stark contrast the way they're living. They live in darkness. You know what Jesus says? You are the light of the world. So day here does not mean has anything to really, it doesn't have anything to go to go to bed at a decent hour. You're of the day. Doesn't mean the early bird catches the worm. My dad used to tell me that, and I always felt like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Then I woke up early one time in one restaurant, had an early bird special, and maybe that's what he meant. I don't know. (laughs) But rather, you know what this is about? Is your outlook on life, the condition of your soul. Day people contrast the sleepwalker. Instead of dreaming, they're wide awake. They see the world as it is. They see the world as it is. They're sensitive to it. Day people see like a baby killed in the womb should rip your heart out. Not be like, oh, it's just a political platform. They should see poor people who need help as instead of it's their own fault. Do you have compassion? Day people care. Like they really care. You are the light of the world. A day person is a son or daughter who wants to please the father that they love. Ephesians 5, 8 through 20 puts it like this. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out, find out what pleases the Lord. I like that phrase. What does dad want me to do today? Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. That's why we sing all kinds of things at church. Keep singing it. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of being blind and insensitive, laughing at things you should weep over, you become sensitive to God and you really want what He wants. When you have a good relationship with your dad, you want to please Him. It reminds me, it's funny, when my sisters and I were younger, like it's funny, there's a strange thing that happens to somebody and you turn about 12 or 13, they start to grow cynical, a little bitter, but think when he talks about children, he's talking about in that sweet age from about 5 until 11, where you want to please your dad. I can remember my sisters and I would put plays on in the basement. We'd say, Mom, Dad, come on down. We're doing a fun play. And I always had to be the prince or something because they had all sisters and Dad, what'd you think? I really liked it. He liked it. Dad, we're going to do another one for you. No, 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 that's okay. That's That's good. That's good. But you want him to like what you do. Does your dad like what you do at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday? No, they're all a bunch of jerks I work with at work. They're jerks. Oh, that really pleases your dad to act like that, doesn't it? Life is tough, but there's always hope because your dad's with you. Let's go back to Psalm 
73. I love this part of the psalm. So remember Psalm 73 said it looked like all the evil men was doing great until I, until I was up into God's house and he showed me what's really going to happen to him. And then he comes awake. He's awake. He's sober. And he comes to verse 23. Verse 22, he talks about his position before he was awake. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Like I'm just dumb. That's the point. In 23, he says, nevertheless, this is Psalm 73, 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards, 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 I get to go to glory. There's a, when my kids were small, my wife and I would take them places. We had four kids, and sometimes we'd go like to the zoo or the mall or something. And when kids are small, you know how much energy they have. They run all around. And when you go to places with crowds, sometimes it's hard with kids, especially when they're mobile. You know, they'll take off and they'll be in a monkey cage. So what you got to do is when you go with your kids, when you go with your kids to crowds, you hold them by their hand so they won't get away. God holds us by our hand. Life's hard. He's got me. And he's continually with me. And afterwards, he'll bring me to glory. And this is, this is the end for which God created the world. It's beyond our wildest dreams. Yellow represents entering in the presence of God, the holy God. When he comes, it will be like the rising of the sun. No one will be shielded from him. Those who are his are able to see him because they will be protected by the righteousness of Christ. He'll cover them. They're in him. They have nothing to fear. But for those who have been sleepwalking, the arrival of the king will be anything but pleasant going to be called wrath, the anger and the fury of God. So that leads to a question. If wrath is God's fury, his anger, why are the children safe? Why, why are the children safe? And verse 10 gives you the answer. Some of you are so worried about making God mad at you. Like he's always angry at me. Wait a minute, did you read verse 10? Let's go all the way back here again. Verse 10. For God, to start at 9, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, that's glory, through our Lord Jesus. Why? He died, he died for us. He already took wrath. Why in the world, if he took my wrath, would he expect me to take it again? He's faithful and he's just. He forgives us our sins. He died for us. And he did this because of the rest of verse 10. Look at the rest of verse 10. It says, who died for us so that. And I'm going to read it real slow and let it sink in. Because I'm not sure many of you believe this. So that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with, with him. Um, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Don't be afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. There's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go there to prepare a place for you so that I can come back and bring you to be with me. He wants to be with us. And then that's when Thomas said, but we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Well, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through the cross. The point of this whole book, it's not necessarily to scare you, it's to encourage you. Look at the very last verse. Last verse says, be comforted or be encouraged. I, I, um, I didn't, Jackie, I didn't share this in the first service, but you don't mind if I share the story I told you. Jackie and I were talking. Jackie's very honest with me, and she heard the first sermon, and she said, truthfully, I'm scared of dying. And I told her about one of my favorite stories. I've, I use this sometimes in, in uh, funerals, but it's one of my favorite stories. His name's Peter Marshall. He was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He would uh, pray for the U.S. Senate back in the 50s. Actually, like uh, the end of the 30s to the mid-40s, he did it. But he was asked to preach at the Naval Academy in Virginia. And he went to give his message, and he felt he had to change it, that God wanted him to change it. And instead of giving some theological thing, all he talked about is dying and death. What is death like? And he said, I, he, said he had a lady in his congregation who had a son who had leukemia. And the son who had, who had leukemia was about 10 years old and needed a couple days, a couple weeks to live. And he went up to his mom in the kitchen. He said to his mom, he said, Mom, Mom, what is it like to die? And she did not know what to say. So she ran into the kitchen. She said, God, you got to help me. I don't know what to say. So all of a sudden she said, I had, I had, a, I had it. So she went back to her son's room. And she said, let's say his name's Johnny. I don't know what his son's name was. She says, Johnny, do you remember on Sundays after church, what did we do? Well, we'd always go in the car and go for a long drive. She said, so your dad's driving, I'm in the passenger seat, and you're in the back seat. Sometimes on those long drives, the sun would beat through the window, and it would get warm in the car, and you would fall asleep like that. You remember that? He goes, oh, yeah. Do you know what happened the rest of the day? No, no, I don't. Your dad would pull into the driveway open the back seat, and with his arms, lift you up, bring you to your own room. And then when you woke up, you would be in your very own room. The person who loved you the most, with his big strong arms, lifted you up and brought you to where you are most welcome. That's what death is like. Jesus with his arms, reaches down in and he grabs you and he takes you to be with himself in a room where you're home. That's what, that's what this is about. But the only way to get home is by taking this road. And it will all be worth it. And so seriously, I honestly don't know where you're at. I honestly don't know what you believe. Sometimes I'm not sure you know what you believe. But are you sleeping? 
Are you insensitive to things that Christ died for? Like, do you laugh at jokes that Jesus was pierced for? Are you drunk? Do you drink a lot? And medicate. Some people medicate on movies. That's all they do. Or are you a, like a, like let's say a 7 to 10 year old child who just wants their dad to like them. Dad, what do you want? You can tell. You know. And I'm just telling you, this says, and I'm not that kind of preacher that says, you know what, you might walk out of there and walk on M37 and get hit by a semi. Who knows? I'm not going to scare you like that. But the truth is, when he comes, it's over. It's over. There's no escape. So the question is, what do I do then? Here, it's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe that Jesus really died for your sins, rose from the dead, and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. I like to look at it like if I could just look up and see him. He's really there. He's like really there. I think right now as I'm saying this, he really hears me. Sometimes, like even when we sing that song, Jesus is mine, and sometimes we sing songs and we sing them because they make me feel nice. No, Jesus is mine now. Is he yours? 